I, I did. You know, the first thing that got me playing bass, and I didn't start playing bass until I was 17. I was a senior okay. in high school before I ever picked up a bass. But the first bass line I ever tried to pick out was a Rick James song, You and I. It's this four-note four bass line. And th this kid that lived in the dorm at my school uh, had a bass that only had two strings on it, the E and the A string. And, and uh, you know, the musician's joke is pretty much that's all you need to do to work be a, a working musician anyway is those two strings. And that's all this baseline had to do is bound down, 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 down. And I just picked it out by ear. And I was like, you know, I think maybe I could do this, you know, like I, I knew I was a latecomer to the whole thing, but it just appealed to me. And I, and I was able to sort of like pick out baseline. So um, I, I washed dishes for a summer at a dude ranch in, in the Colorado Rockies, if you can believe that. And I saved up my pennies and I bought, a used Fender Precision bass uh, that I still have to this day. I've had it for 40 years now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train tonight, though I'm sure he will come up. He normally does. And we are talking to a musician, a writer, uh, and an all-around, as he calls it, working-class rock star. Ivan Bodley, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Yeah. So tell us a little about yourself. Well, there's a lot to tell. So much and so, in fact, I wrote a book about it. Um, I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, back in the deep south, and I uh, went to school in New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh, uh, we're in New from, Orleans. I went to Tulane University down there. Oh, very nice. I'm from Lake Charles. Oh, right on. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You, you know what we're talking about then. Yes, I am. So, yeah, I was a Tulane kid and uh, started out as an engineering student, ended up as a psychology student, but mostly majored in college radio. I was the music director down at WTUL New Orleans for my, almost my whole time down there. And from that, I went into the music business. I got a job as a publicist with Epic Records uh, okay. for about my, that was my first job out of school. Uh, and I did that for about three years and decided, you know, music business has very little to do with music. It's all about the marketing. It's like a marketing company. They could yes. be selling soap, you know, they just happened to be selling vinyl records at the time, you know, back in, back in my day, Sonny, they had yeah. vinyl records. Um, so I decided I wanted to be more on the creative side. So I, 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 I quit my job. I turned in my corporate Amex card and said, thank you very much. And I'm going to go try to be a musician. And they were like, well, good luck to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good luck to you. Uh, knocked around for a minute, lived overseas for a minute and decided to come back and go to music school. So I went to college a second time to Berkeley College of Music up in Boston. When I graduated from there, which was 1992, 30 years ago this year, moved back to New York City and tried to really make a go of it. And I can say in retrospect that I haven't had a day job since 1995. Nothing wrong with that. 
so at the end of every calendar year, I always go, man, I fooled him again. I don't know how I did it, but I, I got away with it one more time. And then uh, the top line of my bio, which you probably saw already, you know, said, I, you know, in, in the process of that 30 years, I've played with uh, 50 5-0 inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, I've appeared in 12 different Broadway shows. I'm a, an inductee into the New York Blues Hall of Fame, and I'm still here and I'm still doing it. I don't know how and I don't know why, but I'm not going to complain. It's work, working out. So um, we, I've, I made a joke about you, and we're going to talk about your book, Am I Famous Yet? <laughs> Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. Yeah. It made me think of Kevin Pollack's um, you know, book where he says, How I Slept My Way to the Middle. Right. right? <laughs> exactly. So, so, yeah. Well, um, Ivan, we always like to start at the beginning. So talk about you. You said you, uh, you know, you grew up in Chattanooga. Talk about what kind of music was your family listening to? What did you listen to as a kid? Well, you know, it's so interesting because I knew that you're you're very Bruce focused and Bruce centric, yeah. which I respect. But I didn't grow up with Bruce at all. I wasn't aware of him. I wasn't a fan. I wasn't, you know, I was listening to Southern soul music. I was listening to you know, my mom's record collection, it was like Gladys Knight and the Pips, mm-hmm. and King, King Floyd and Stevie Wonder and uh, Sam and Dave and, uh, you know, Ike and Tina Turner, that kind of stuff. I wasn't even a Beatles fan. Like I was aware of them. You know, I'm aware of yeah. all these artists, but like I was just listening to to soul and R&B music as a kid growing up. The Jackson 5, that was the first album I ever bought was their Jackson 5 greatest mm-hmm. hits. And the first 45 I ever bought was Sly and the Family Stone, if you want me to stay, you know. So yeah, that was my my bread and butter, you know, growing up. And, and I was really into the deep Southern soul. Your um, you mentioned your mom. Was your dad uh, was he in the picture? Did he have a different taste or the similar? My dad is into Vivaldi and Baroque classical music. Okay. Uh, my mother was into like she liked everybody's greatest hits album because okay. you knew there weren't any bad songs on them. She was that kind of music. Consumer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it. You know, very pragmatic, you know, she wasn't going to mm-hmm. buy the, the new album when it came out and try it out. She, like, right. she wanted the hits package. So she knew she was going to like every song. So she had like, you know, Beatles and stones and show tunes and, and Broadway cast albums. And, you know, but I gravitated towards, she loved Gladys Knight. She loved Gladys okay. Knight. So I, I gravitated towards that stuff. And Stevie Wonder, Science Seal Delivered, we had that album in the house and stuff like that. Uh, and I just remember, like, you know, there were radio formats in those days. They still are. They were very segregated in those days. So, you know, mm-hmm. there were two, like, you know, urban soul music R&B stations in town, one AM and one FM. And I just grew up listening to those, you know, those are my stations, my people. So when you got to high school what did you find your own musical taste or did you stay kind of hooked on that southern soul i I did you know the first thing got me playing bass and i didn't start playing bass until i was 17 i was a senior in high school before i ever picked up a bass but the first bass line i ever tried to pick out was a rick james song called you and i it's this four four note bass line and this kid that lived in the dorm at my school uh had a bass that only had two strings on it the E and the A string. And, and uh, you know, the musician's joke is pretty much that's all you need to do to work, be a, a working musician anyways, those two strings. And that's all this bass line had to do is bound, down, 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 down. And I just picked it out by ear. And I was like, you know, I think maybe I could 
do this, you know, like I, I knew I was a latecomer to the whole thing, but it just appealed to me and I, and I was able to sort of like pick out baselines. So um, I, I washed dishes for a summer at a dude ranch in, in the Colorado Rockies, if you can believe that. And I saved up my pennies and I bought a used Fender Precision Bass uh, that I still have to this day. I've had it for 40 years now. Yeah. Um, and I, my dad asked me what I wanted for my birthday that year. And I said, I want bass lessons. That's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I found a guy who was a, a year ahead of me in high school, uh, in my school, named Rick Lazarus. So again, I'm still friends with him to this day, too. He gave me lessons for $15 a week. You know, and I was like, that's good value for dollar right there. And it, it just set me off, you know, on a path. That, what, and, Ivan, what about the bass spoke to you? Because often you hear the stories that you know the myth of we're putting together a band and someone <laughs> well like we don't need another guitarist so see yeah. if you can figure out the bass right we'll yeah. just put you on bass yeah paul mccartney he drew he drew the short straw you know right. like yeah we need a bass player you got it he's like all right i'll do it uh, you know i i have a theory and it's a it's a cockamamie theory and it's not based on anything but i i don't think you pick your instrument i think your instrument picks you Yes, because there are certain personality types that go with the different functions of each instrument within the band. So my personality type just sort of liked having the supportive role, the foundational role, uh, the the and, and also it appealed to me like the bass seemed to be like bass and drums seemed to be like, you know, the things that really made the crowd dance. Yeah. And. And that's what I was into. Like the music I was listening to was highly rhythmic. You know, if you think about the Motown recordings, they're, they're sure. all bass. It's yeah. All bass and some singers, you know. Right. <laughs> so I grew up listening to that and going like, yeah, that, that just appealed to me. Well, because you think about, you know, throwing it to Bruce, like Gary Talent is, you know, one of the least showmanish of yeah. the e street band right that's he just right. sits right. there you know like the this last tour he had his you know sunglasses on and just sits there just you know throwing down the baseline you he know, just be, anchors the whole thing right that's yeah what he, exactly that's job. yeah anchor it him and exactly him and, uh, yeah and max right what why tulane why did you go to uh tulane it, that was an interesting choice. It was, uh, I applied to a bunch of different schools, you know, sort of around okay. the country. And that was in, I didn't, I never saw Tulane before I, the first day I showed up, I okay. never went to visit the school, but it was in the largest metropolitan area of all the schools that I got accepted to. And growing up, at, you know, in a very small pond in the deep right. South and the Bible belt, you know, and, and I'm a little different looking guy. I'm six foot five. I'm freaky. I'm, you know, I'm, come from a Jewish background. Like I don't, I didn't fit in down there and I knew I needed to get to a bigger city. And, and New Orleans was, the, like I said, the biggest town of all the places that I got accepted. So I was like, that's all I need to know. And it turned out it worked out great. You know? Yeah. Did, as you went to New Orleans, did you, did you explore all the different musical roots from there? I know you weren't studying music, but it, right. it's such a big part of the city, food and music. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, I kind of knew, cause I had a, uh, uh, a, a high school, there was no music program at my high school. That was the other thing. It was kind of this, this, this preparatory school that was supposed to be kind of highfalutin and all that kind of stuff, but they had no music program. So I had to catch this, you know, all the stuff on my own, but like my senior year, they had a choir 
And the choir director they hired was from, I think, Natchitoches, Louisiana. So he told me about it. There's a band in there called the Neville Brothers. Like, you need to find them out. He would told me about Dr. John. So I knew, you know, I was very hip to music and very into absorbing things at that age. You know, I was really like mm -hmm. a sponge. So he, he started to hit me to, you know, Southern Louisiana, especially R&B music, not the yeah. Zotico stuff so much or the Cajun stuff, but yeah, definitely like the R&B stuff. So when I got there, oh yeah, I jumped right in and we saw the Nevels at Tipitina's like first yeah. thing. And I'm friends with Aaron Neville to this day. You know? Oh, that's awesome. Because yeah. um, I was just on another podcast and they were talking to me about um, concerts I attended. And I said mm. in my maybe top five, definitely top 10 was when Linda Ronstadt was touring with the Neville right. brothers, right. right? The Neville yes. brothers opened. Yes. Then, uh, and then Aaron came out and sang a few <laughs> songs where there was during, she had put that album out. Sure um, one of the best experiences because the Neville brothers alone put on a great show. Killing. Yeah. Unbelievable just, live show. Yeah. Just a wonderful show. Mm -hmm. And then to hear Linda, because I graduated high school in 77. So, mm -hmm. you know, I had a massive crush on Linda Ronstadt when I was in oh, high school. Who, and, who know, didn't? Wow. Exactly. She's amazing, right? Yeah. And what a voice. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I, I can only, I, I love your story about getting in the music business mm -hmm. and realizing that, all of a sudden you're not doing anything at all with music. You're working with spreadsheets. You're working with, right. You're working with all the business part of it and spending more mm -hmm. time looking at finances than you are actually art. I, I take it. Right. Yeah. I was a publicist. So what I was okay. doing was calling journalists, newspaper writers and, and pitching them all these records that we had out. Cause we wanted them to do an article or put them on a yeah. TV show or whatever, you know, and, and, the label would put out, I forget what they were doing at that time, maybe 40 or 50 albums a year. Yeah. You know, and I have a, a plaque on my wall here, just out of frame here. It's like all the gold and platinum records from that year, from like 1988. And I think wow. like 12, 12 or 13 of them. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff that really doesn't register, doesn't chart, doesn't really do well. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff you're like pitching to these journalists. Like, don't you want to hear the new album by so-and-so? And, -so? and yeah. they didn't because nobody right. wanted to hear it, you know. And it turned into an exercise for me of, of, of what I called extolling virtue. So I got this record in front of me that I have to promote and I have to figure to myself, somebody likes this record. And I don't, it might just be the singers, the lead singer's mom, but somebody likes it. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to figure out why and try to pitch that to these, you know, um, journalists and whatnot. And I wasn't a very social kind of person so it was really hard for me to dial the phone because in those days it was dialing the phone from the mm -hmm. people on the, and they're saying hey man you need to really listen to this and they're like yeah <laughs> yeah <I>? yeah because <laughs> so it, it yeah. isn't because it isn't like you if you discover it isn't that excitement than when you discover a new artist like your face lit up when you're talking about the neville brothers sure. right this yeah. could have been just anything and whether you like it or not you've got to go out there and pitch it like come on have them on their show play them on there you know let's let's you sure you don't want an interview uh, if i can <laughs> see it's um i sold insurance for like a year and i sucked at it and it's just uh, that same thing you know trying to find people to talk to and and let me let me tell you, this information just was right. not fun at all. The, the thing that kept me going was some of my 
favorite clients. Like I was, I was yeah. the publicist for Living Color when their first album came out, and okay. that I just adored. It was they were great right. people, great musicians. I worked with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. I worked with Stanley Clark, Weird Al Yankovic, uh, a bunch of people like that. Uh, I was around Luther Vandross a little bit. I was at the label when they put out the bad album by Michael Jackson. Uh, wow. So th there were some things that were really fun to be around, but it was a lot of drudge work too. And yes, like you, as you're saying, it was, it was marketing. Yeah. Sales. And sure. I just wasn't into it, you know? Yeah. Um, when you said you went to school, um, what you just knew you, you knew you wanted to get an education when you decided to go to music school. You decided uh, instead of just getting a bunch of buddies and trying to, hey, let's do a band. Right. You, you decided to pursue education. Why is that? Well, by the time I got to the point where I had sort of hit the wall with my business career, I, I kind of I had a, a realization which kind of made me sick to my stomach. And it was that I only really wanted to play music for a living. And that's a terrible thing to think because the odds of you being able to actually do that successfully yeah. are infinitesimally small. And I had been playing semi-professionally, like I'd been doing gigs in New Orleans. I actually did some pickup gigs with Bo Diddley when he came through town in New Orleans and uh, played jazz just a couple of times. You know, I'd done some things, you know, yeah. and I was doing some freelance things, but I recognized that my training was woefully inadequate because I, I didn't come up reading I didn't come up you know with a music program so what I needed to do I thought it turns out I was right but I didn't know that I was right but it was to fill in all the gaps in my musical knowledge you know theory harmony composition all this kind of stuff to, if I was going to really seriously try to make a go at it professionally um, and it, yeah, it turns out that was that was the right instinct for me it's not right for everybody. And I'm also glad I didn't go to Berkeley when I was 17, 18 years old. Right. You know, I went when I was like 25 and it was like, mm -hmm. I sort of had a little tiny bit of life experience, a tiny bit of business experience, 26, whatever it was. So, and, and I was paying for it myself, you know, I'm taking out student loans to pay for it myself. So that made me really buckle down and study hard, you know, and a little more maturity, right. Versus at the, you know, in the middle twenties. I mean, yeah. yeah. As, as, as we can say this from this point in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 25 is more mature than 17 for sure. Yes. yes. <laughs> but still we did, I didn't know what I didn't know until exactly. Until yes. Later, you know? yeah. yeah. Um. So once you got your, I want to talk to you about your experience of performing because um, my, my wife's brother is about 10 years, uh, eight or nine years older than us. So he grew up in the 60s where that, you know, hey, garage band, you, you get a bunch of buddies together, you go play at the CYO, you sure. play at the, you know, the VFW, you do all that. Mm -hmm. And he talked about, he ended up going into the medical field, respiratory therapist and gotten a lot of it. And one of his buddies stayed in the music business. And, mm -hmm. you know, so they, he called him up and said, Hey, Ralph, we're doing a wedding. Do you want to play drums with us? you know, for fun. And, right, sure. and Ralph's like, sure. And he said it was a totally different environment because, you know, when he was 20, it was a social thing just as much right. as it was a business. And all of a sudden right. now then all these guys, it's just the business. Like, where do I plug in? Let's do the gig. 
and let's go home. And if so, it's a wedding, if it's a wedding, you got to play the first dance, the parent dances, the cake cutting. You have all yeah. these specialty songs you have to do. You got to play. It's a four-hour engagement. You got to wear a suit. It, yeah, I do yeah. them all the time. All the time. So, so when you decided, talk about once you got your degree, what mm-hmm. did you, did you have a plan? Did you have what what were you thinking to do? You knew you wanted to make a living playing music, but what was your plan? Oh, I had a plan. I had a plan. I was okay. going to move to New York City. I was going to be like a fusion jazz star sideman to the to everybody. I was going to be playing on records and tours. I was going to play on the the uh, Tonight Show with with Johnny Carson or Jay Leno. I was going to play on the David Letterman show. I was going to play Madison Square Garden and I was going to do Saturday Night Live. That was my goal. Okay, exactly. None of that has happened in my career. Not one of those things has happened. Okay. The, the best laid plans, you know, like, yeah, you just don't know. So I've done a whole lot of other stuff. You know, I have played Carnegie Hall. I have played the theater at Madison Square Garden, which is the small 5,000 seater downstairs, you know, the intimate okay. venue. Uh, yeah. Know. And I've done, I did Conan O'Brien. We did Craig Ferguson. We did a bunch of late night shows too, just, but just not the three that I said, those are my goal. I'm going to do yeah. these three. Never did those, you know. So uh, what's the quote? You know, life is what happens when you're, Busy making plan. other plans. Yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So when did you start? Because one of your, um, as you said, you you have worked with over, you know, 50 members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? The right. Okay. Yeah. When did you start realizing, hey, I'm notching up appearances with pretty significant musicians? That was a few years in. Uh, I had a, a buddy of mine who was saying, like, you know, you should start like maybe keeping a keeping a running tally of all the Hall of, Hall of Famers because yeah. what happened is when, when I got to New York through a, a series of like complete coincidences and accidents and referrals by friends of friends to friends of friends, you know, I ended up doing a gig substitute as a substitute bass player with uh, Shirley Alston Reeves the original lead singer of the world famous Shirelles. Oh, okay. So, so I started playing with the Shirelles and the Shirelles like started playing the sort of classic rock and roll oldie circuit, right? Classic R&B circuit. Yeah. So through them, I met the tokens and through them, I met the drifters and through them, I met, you know, like all these, it just, it was one foot in front of the other that these mm-hmm. things started to happen. And the drummer with the Shirelles was also the drummer with Wilson Pickett for 35 years. And he played in a band in New York city called the Uptown Horns Review. Okay. And there happened to be, you know, he saw that I came into the Shirelles gig completely prepared because I'd gone to music school. I knew how to learn the, the material. Right. I read the charts. I just did the show with no rehearsal. First show had to be perfect. You know, and he saw me do that. And the, the Uptown Horns had a gig at the bottom line in New York city. I think it was maybe a record release party or something. It was a big gig and they needed a bass player. So they, and the Crusher was their drummer. Crusher Green was his name. And he said, uh, get this kid, Ivan, you know, I like the way he plays and he does his homework. That was the thing. He does his homework. So I got a a normal bias cassette tape. They gave me (laughs) to learn the music from is to get the 99 cent store. And um, I transcribed everything. I wrote charts. We had one rehearsal. And then we did the first gig in, at the bottom line, with, uh, and it was the Uptown Horns Review featuring Susie Tyrell, Bernard, ah. Bernard Fowler, yeah. who sings with a band called the Rolling Stones. I don't know if you heard of them. Yeah, I'm uh, sorry, but yeah. 
Vernon Reed from Living Color and uh, Peter Wolf from the Jake Giles Band. That those were their special guests that night. So that was my first night on stage with them. Suddenly, I'm backing all these these people, and then the Uptown Horns Review became the oh the uh, the, the Uptown Horns Review also had a, a piano player, a guy named Charlie Giordano. I've I've heard of yes. I thought you might have yes. So that band became like the house band of choice for. Uh, rhythm and blues stars who were coming through town and needed to pick up a band. Mm-hmm. So once I was in the Uptown Horns band, then we I met Sam Moore from Sam and Dave. I met Eddie Floyd. We backed up Rufus Thomas, Carla Thomas, Solomon Burke. We did a bunch of shows with him. Uh, Ann Peebles, like all these things started to sort of cascade again, one foot in front of the other. And then in retrospect, you're like, man, that's a lot of people that have like you know of, yeah. of renown and you start to put it on the resume and it it added up over years you know that's that's hilarious um i i have said often that i would love to talk to any member of the e street band but Susie <laughs> is one of the people that i especially yeah. just i think her perspective you know she seems to be always having so much fun on stage and she's just you know so she's that would have been, been that way she's yeah. always been that way because I, I met her with the uptown horns and then i started doing some buster poindexter gigs and she was in the band she's a blue along yeah. with charlie giordano yeah you know so i know them from from way back then and lisa lowell and cheryl marshall and a bunch of singers that have, yeah. that have worked in and around bruce over the years you know so like yeah Susie's always that way she's always been like just a, a bubbly ebullient performer she's always having a great time <laughs> yeah so um how house like house at this point house how secure is your gigs? Do you are you do you still have things booked pretty steadily, or is it you're still putting one foot in front of the other, Ivan? Both. Okay. Both. I mean the 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 standard joke that I use is the the day after you play Madison Square Garden, you're unemployed again. Yes. You know, so every as a freelancer, you know, every gig is your last gig. You know, and especially right. as all the Broadway work I've been doing is like as a substitute musician. So okay. You know, I come in once a week, once every two weeks, once every month, whatever it is, you know, and then um, on the way out the door, you know, somebody in the band will say, do you have any more dates coming up? And I go, nope, that's, I'm never working in this town again. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that said, I have some gigs booked, you know, coming up with Jay and the Americans. I have a few dates with Little Anthony and the Imperials. And I have like, I know I, I've, I've got weddings booked all the way through uh, no, November. Like, I know where I'm going to be like between now and probably the end of the year how 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 challenging is to be that chameleon Mm -hmm. that to be able to okay you need me to play bass for a broadway score okay Mm -hmm. you know or you know or okay now you need me to do you know classic you know 50s rock and roll oh now it's a soul band how you you it sounds like you have to be you obviously are very good at fitting other people's matching the tone of the band yeah well chameleon is exactly the right way to think of it you know it's like i, I i've always loved different genres of music i mean even though i grew up primarily listening to classic soul you know yeah 
when you listen to the radio and the FM rock stations back then, you're, you're hearing all the, all those things as well. Sure. So, you, you know, and then in Tennessee, there's country music around, there's all this yeah. different sort of genres. Then Louisiana, as you say, it's Cajun, Zydeco, R&B, you know, the heavy yeah. funk stuff with the meters. So all that stuff is like coming in like a sponge as I'm sort of developing. And in New Orleans, you know, if you're doing a gig, you're playing all kind of different stuff. Yeah. You know? So I always was playing different genres and, and very aware of it. Uh, and then as you mature, I guess you start to specialize in things. Like I said, I was trying to be a, you know, a fusion jazz star and I'm not right. that at all, not that at all. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I've paid most of my rent, you know, playing stacks and Motown. Yeah. You know, that's what, and, and, and I, you know, you mentioned Gary talent too. I think, I think they're Gary's like, modeled most of his career on duck dunn from stacks you know right like his lines all sound like duck dunn lines to me which is you know all praise all praise be to gary talent and duck dunn i think that's tremendous i love that yeah well because i i love that idea of the flexibility the idea Mm -hmm. and and as someone who's not a musician one of the one of the magic tricks that I just think is amazing is when um, three or four people might get together or just, Hey, Ivan, come in and join us. You're like, okay, no rehearsal, nothing like, Oh, what are we going to do? And, you know, they may pick a song. Like um, I was at the, um, the nitty gritty dirt band a few years ago Mm, and there was a guy who uh i saw him on stage when they were doing will the circle be unbroken right and uh and i said wow are you friends he says yeah i'm friends with the guys and so when it came up for the they they waved me up and they gave me a guitar and they whispered hey do you know a verse and i'm like yeah i know a verse and he (laughs) says so they gave me a verse and i'm just like that's that's crazy tremendous yeah yeah so it's it's that kind of you just you have that gift, that idea of being able to hear what the other band's doing and know how to replicate it. Well, I, I, it's a, I mean, I don't know if it's a gift. It's a skill that I've worked really hard on. There's okay. Two, two prongs to this one. I think to, to sort of be a full-time freelance musician, you kind of need to be able to do any type of gig because yes. there's no one gig, you know, unless maybe you're in the E street band, it's going to pay all of your mortgage. Right. You know, and those are very rare gigs that those that yeah. those happen. So you kind of have to be ready to do a bunch of different things to pay the rent. And then the other thing I did, I had a great experience. Yeah, um, this is going back 25 years or so. I spent about five years being in the house band at a Monday night blues jam session. So it was an open mic thing that started probably 11 or midnight and went to, you know, three o'clock in the morning kind of thing. Yeah. And you just never knew who was going to show up what songs they were going to pull out of the ether, you know? So in my travels over years, you know, I've written little charts for a bunch of things, especially for the wedding stuff, you know, so I have everything in my iPad. I have all my charts with me at all times, but also you just start to learn songs that you've done over and over and over again. There's a a bunch of standard repertoire that you learn, like will the circle be unbroken? I don't, I don't, I've never played it, but I bet I could get through it. You know, it's a a three chord sort of thing, you know, and it, it makes you develop your ears 
uh, and it also makes you sort of like as you're listening to like you know at a, at a jam session if somebody's playing a song because people have got up and said i want to do one of my original songs you're like okay well i definitely don't know it yeah <laughs> you know so as they're playing the first verse you're kind of like taking notes okay so there's an e chord there's an a chord there's a b chord, oh there's a d chord there it is you know yeah so but you're automatically memorizing it because the next verse, you know, hopefully you're going to come in and play along with them. So you have to have some ear training and you have to have some sort of like instantaneous kind of recall going on to try to jump in there and not pollute the air. That's the other thing. Like don't pollute the air as you can. Uh, and it's, it's hard as a bass player too, because I have to commit to a root, a chord root on a downbeat, like a, a keyboard player can kind of noodle along in G a guitar can kind of noodle along in the key and sort of sound like they kind of know what they're doing a little better, but I'd have to know what the chord is G D C, you know what I mean? Like I need to really commit to something. Um, and then hopefully I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about touring. Um, yeah. you, what are some stories about crazy places you've, uh, you know, where you've toured you know like gigs that you go holy crap i can't believe i'm here well yeah there's 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 a bunch of them. in fact there's a lot of the a lot of the book is is road stories i mean okay. crazy the road stories like you know i was talking to somebody the other day and uh you know if you go to a gig and it's a great show and the audience is wonderful and you you enjoyed yourself and you made lots of money and you came home and you had a nice dinner and went to bed there's no story there Right. Like there's, only, there's only a story to tell when something blew up or, you know, an amp fried or, you know, somebody fell off the stage or, you know, <laughs> it has to be something interesting. So the book is full of a lot of, you know, uh, tales of woe, tales where things kind of go haywire. Um, but in my travels, I've been to 29 different countries around the world, you know, and I've played, uh, you know, everything from madison square garden not madison, i'm sorry I'm, I'm not, yeah. i haven't played madison square garden i played carnegie hall i played uh um giant stadium for eighty-two thousand people you know like that's the biggest crowd that i've ever played for yeah um i played um uh the obama first inauguration ball with sam moore from sam and dave i was his music director for 13 years on the road and it was sam moore with special guests elvis costello and sting those were our special guests that night. And I was like, okay, I, this will do. This is fine. Yeah, this is, let me check those two off my little bingo yeah. card. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that, that, yeah they're, they've got a little, they've got skins on the wall. Three, three hall of famers in one night, you know, and it had yeah. nothing to do with me. It's Sam. They're all fans of Sam. Yeah. You know, who else is a giant fan of Sam? Bruce. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So I met all these people that we're talking about standing next to Sam. You know, I met yeah. Bruce standing next to Sam. You know, it's like, this is Ivan. It's my music director. I'm like, hi. <laughs> nice yeah. to see you. You know, I met uh, Robert Plant. I met uh, Bono and the Edge. I met uh, Paul Rogers from Bad Company. All these people come at Sam with no ego, like however big rock stars they are, because he was before them. He's got this amazing instrument, his true first tenor voice, you know, so they just, they, they worship him. Well, you know. he because you hear Bruce, you know, he'll talk about that, like for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yes. performance or something about like the premier, one of the premier voices yes. of 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 pop music, rock and roll, soul, whatever you want to call it, of modern music. That voice is Sam. Yeah. Right. 
and I was his conductor for 13 years on the road. So yeah, we did a lot of stuff together. Really cool stuff. Um, that, I got that invited must have been down. Fi- that must have been fun. Tremendous, tremendous. Yeah. I don't know if you can see this. Yeah. You know what that is? Yes, that is. It it appears to have a, a, a backstage or a pass for Springsteen, right? It is a laminated pass to the Bruce Springsteen Christmas show. I think this is 2004. Uh, yeah. With the Max Weinberg Seven, that was the band and yeah. friends. So it wasn't an E Street gig per se, but Sam was the special guest. So I went down, one of the special guests, I went down with Sam, just, just hung out, you know? Yeah. And then after the show, I, I know the Vivinos and some of the guys in the band, they're like, why didn't you get up and play? I was like, I wasn't invited, man. I would have <laughs> loved to play. Trust me. I wanted to. I would have been happy to do place, you know, some Sam and Dave songs that I know, you know? Yeah. But Sam does four songs in his show in higher keys than he originally recorded them in the sixties. Wow. He's 86 years old. He's, he's retired from full-time concerts now, but he's got this crazy instrument. He doesn't practice. He doesn't warm up. He just opens his mouth and that voice comes out. And, you know, as you see, you know, people, some of the premier rock stars of our age are huge fans of his. And just what a, what a privilege every time you got to play with him. Amazing. That's amazing. That's good. How did you get the gig? Uh, again, I met him with the Uptown Horns band that I told you about when we were sort of the pickup band. He would come through New York. So I, I did a couple of shows with him as a pickup band. And then same thing, like he had a, a show coming up. His regular music director wasn't available. Uh, it, and, you know, like we had a week to prepare the show. And it was a it was a release party for a film called Only the Strong Survive, which okay. is a soul music documentary. And it was at the B.B. King's Club in New York. And it was Sam Moore with Carla Thomas, the Shy Lights, Mary Wilson from the Supremes. Um, I'm missing. Oh, Ann Peebles. I can't stand the rain. Ann Peebles. And, you know, they said, you know, can Ivan, can you come lead the band for this? I'm like, yeah, you know, it's a mountain of work to get this show together. And it was, you know, Sam saw what I was able to pull off that night. And he said, you're coming with me and I, you know, stayed with him for 13 years until he, wow. until he retired, you know? So what a lot of people go, Oh, I should write a book. Oh, if I trust me, <laughs> if I would collect my stories, I'd make a great book. Yeah. How did you go from that general statement that a lot of people make to actually doing the work and the discipline to write a book? Right. Well, I was encouraged to do it by people because I'm constantly telling stories when <clears throat> something happens there. I was like, oh, that reminds me of this time when something even stranger happened. People yeah. go like, you, sh- you should write a book, man. You should write this stuff down. So about, I think, four years ago now, I actually sat down and did it because uh, as a freelance musician, winter time is kind of our slow season. Okay. So sometimes in the winter, you can sit around in January and February and do like two or three gigs the whole month and really mm-hmm. feel underemployed underutilized yeah. so i sat down and i started writing started you know compiling all this stuff and got it most of the way finished uh, and then when the pandemic shutdown hit i was like all right well now here's the chance to really finish this thing and tidy it up and get it edited and and put out so yeah i tried to make lemonade out of lemons that uh, life had handed us yeah got the, got the book finished 
Yeah, the book is Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. Available. Um, I'm looking at it at Amazon. I'm sure it's available at almost everywhere you can find books. Yeah, everywhere you can find books as long as it's Amazon. I yeah, think. okay. <laughs> That's the main place it's available. So, right. yeah, there are people that, that buy it off Amazon and, and carry it in their stores, I think, but mostly, yeah, okay. I'd say Amazon. The link's on my website too. So, okay, get yeah. People there. Um, what uh what's next for you besides a couple of weddings and right uh, well yeah. a lot of weddings uh like yeah. i said i got the uh, jay and the americans i got some bookings with them i got little anthony and the imperials anthony's tremendous he's just turned 80 82 years old wow sounds like it sounds like a teenager sings everything in the original key from the 60s uh i you know i've got some i've got a corporate gig coming up in a in a couple of weeks, you know, we're going to go play at eight o'clock in the morning for some big rah-rah marketing meeting. where like the, the yeah. band to get everybody juiced up to sell whatever they're selling. Sure. I, don't know. I have no idea what we're doing, you know? So like it, I'm doing a recording session on Sunday, you know, it's just, it's all over the map as, as it's always been. It's always yeah. all over the map. I'm subbing at Jersey boys. I'm uh, on the Broadway show up here occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I was subbing at Ain't Too Proud, the Temptations musical, but that unfortunately closed. It was a, it was a victim of the pandemic, or really the mm-hmm. Omicron wave. So, um, you know, I just did a couple of theater workshops. Those things could move forward, get produced. You never know. Mm-hmm. My recordings are starting to come out on Color Red Music in, in Colorado. So, uh, you know, a little of this, a little of that, some of the other yeah. thing. Somehow you have a career at the end of the day. And as you said, you've, uh, you're, you're earning your living playing music and that's something you're, you should be very proud of. You know, I I am, you know, it's, it's, it's what I set out to do. And, and like I said, there's no guarantees. It's kind of a tough road to hoe. And, uh, but yeah, I've been able to pay the rent for Mm -hmm. almost 30 years doing this thing. And that's, that's remarkable to me, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't want to give away all of it, but is there a story you want to share <laughs> from the book to tempt people to go and get it? Uh, let's see. Let's see. Um, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff, good and bad. I'm trying to think if we have. Oh, so I, you know, I alluded to this before the, the Obama inauguration ball. Yeah. I told that story in the book because it was just a career high moment sure my first time that i ever played bass in my life on stage at a high school talent show we played message in a bottle by the police first time i was ever in front of people playing and uh for fast forward 27 a mere 27 years and suddenly i'm on stage with sting playing that song there was this sort of life full circle moment that i you there's no possible way my adolescent fanboy brain could have predicted that that would happen yeah almost difficult to process at the time you know and the whole band like you know it was just just an amazing show it was an amazing night and we all the whole band we floated out of the theater like you know we weren't our feet weren't even touching the ground right until we got outside because because it was the inauguration the entire town was booked there was no hotel room so we had to take the the amtrak back to new york city overnight and there were no cabs to get us to the, the, the train station. Right. So it was 20, 20 degrees outside. We'd just come out of this biggest concert of our lives. We're sweaty. We're sure. exhausted. 
and we had to walk a mile and a half in 20 degree weather holding our instruments to the train station you know to take an overnight amtrak back to penn station in new york and it was just like the dichotomy like anytime you start to think you know oh that was a real rock starish kind of thing we just did something brings you right back down to earth you know that immediately. is that is so rock and roll right that is yeah. boy, we're living the life now living the dream man <laughs> and oh by the way you got to walk to the train station at one o'clock in the morning 20 degree weather okay damn it i should have wore my titty shoes instead of I'm, trying to look good on stage tell you man <laughs> I'm telling you, not easy. No limousines for a working class rock star, my friend. There you go. That is awesome. Um, I always like to ask, is there. Who is still on your bucket list you'd love to to play with? Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, I mean, there's there's some shows. I'm Somebody was talking about this the other day. Like, I would love to do anything with Stevie Wonder. Yeah. You know, I'd love to do anything with Donald Fagan or Steely Dan. I just think that would be yeah. amazing musically. Uh, but that said, I don't really, I don't really pine for it because right. I've, I've met so many of my my heroes growing up. It, you know, it almost then becomes greedy, right? Like, okay, what yeah. more could I ask? Right? Like, <laughs> yes, I'd love a steady paycheck. Like, I'd love to get hired to be, yeah. you know, a regular basis than a Broadway show, right? Sure. Like, you know, but. Yeah. Or do a big kind of stadium tour. You know, I'd love yeah. to do something like that, but you know, it's all gravy at this point, you know, it's all going yeah. good. And I, I swear to God, I love anytime, even playing a small nightclub. I play at the bitter end on, on Bleecker street all the time. Yeah. You know, subbing in their house band for the jam session. And, mm -hmm. you know, when things are going good, you know, and you're in front of 10 people, but the band is on fire, you know, it's like, it's great. I love it. I love it. All of it, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. So before I get to the Mary question, um, <laughs> is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? You know, I don't know. I'm trying to think, you know, I, I was thinking about uh, you, were, you were talking about all the all the Bruce Association. So I was looking at your list yeah. of questions like how many live shows you've seen. I've yeah, seen, well, I think I've seen four. Um, I forget what, uh, what the other. Well, uh, you, you we haven't. I. Cause I just have been so fascinated with the rest of, with your career, but can you remember when you first kind of became aware of Bruce Springsteen and his music? Well, yeah, it, it was, like I said, I didn't grow up, you know, collecting the records, but he was on the radio. So he was definitely yeah. on FM radio. So I knew the hits kind of thing. Right. And then when I started working for Epic records, where I was a publicist, as you know, downstairs from Epic was Columbia records. Okay. And they had an artist assigned to their label named Bruce Springsteen. So, you know, when I was uh, working in the office out in, in uh, Los Angeles at the time, you know, uh, I had a friend of mine who was a publicist for another record label for an MCA at the time. Yeah. And she was a super fan, right? super fan. So uh, this would have had to be, I want to say maybe 88. So what's that? The Tunnel of Love tour yeah. or somewhere yeah. around there? Right? Exactly. Eastern yeah. Yeah. And she's like, hey, can you get tickets? Can you get tickets? And, and I, I could. So I was like, so I went with her uh, just, you know, because everybody said, like, you got to see him live. You got to see him live. You got to see him live. And I didn't know any of the music other than, you know, the big hits. The hits, or, yeah. Know, uh, uh, because the night, you know, from Patti Smith or yeah. that kind of thing. And, and what I remember is he did a four 
our show. Yes. And for the uninitiated, I was like, how long is this guy going <laughs> to, how long is this going to go on? And I'm standing next to a super fan who loves every second of it, just like can't right. get enough. And I'm going like, I could, I could leave any time now. I love this. It's great. But, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> you know, I wasn't ready for it. Ivan, I love you telling that because I tell the story all the time that there's two kinds of people. There's the people that go to their first show that go, boy, that was long. And yeah. then the other that go, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't wait to hear this the rest of my life. Right. And it's not, that it's a bad thing or another. It's just, it, um, I don't, there was a Springsteen and I documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was so funny. And one of the ladies that uh, it was a fan, you know, they fans all sent in films and they sure. take it. And one of them, this husband was not a fan. And they, so they asked the questions, what would you tell Bruce if you could tell him anything? And, you know, all these people are saying how much there's music and he goes, yeah. make it shorter. Two hours. Two yeah. Hours like good. make it, make it, make it shorter. <laughs> what I, cause I, what I remember specifically about that show is like, cause he kept you an encore after encore after yeah. encore, you know, and the crowd, ate it up they loved it they wanted sure. more you know so every time he'd get up i remember max standing up and getting off his drums finally after like three and a half hours and bruce was like come on we're gonna warm and max just kind of went oh yeah like he was physically in pain he was i think yes. he was probably dealing with tendonitis at the time sure. he was like oh my god like okay boss let's do it one more you know yeah but i remember seeing that that read from the audience like oh this poor guy man he's getting <laughs> he's getting beat up <laughs> well at and from a perspective of someone who does that for a living, that's a long time, right? That's like it, like gig, that yeah. is a long gig. Now that said, I play four hour weddings all the time. Yes. I do it all the time. So I think I have my stamina, but we're not playing at stadium volume, right. stadium intensity. So I think, you know, I could, I could certainly do that now if I had to, you know, well, and that's what he talks about, right? The, the, the band started out as a bar band, so you right. did play that. You know, you yes. you played that, and you had that mindset. So, yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. I've certainly played four and five hours a night many, many times. You know, yeah. And so, yeah, you build up that stamina. But again, if you start to get injured, like I think Max was getting injured at that time, yeah. Like, it was probably harder on him than than anybody oh, sure. else in the band. I bet. Well, you know, we've talked about Neil said both knees replaced that's and right. just i mean oh. just oh, oh boy you know yeah um any final thoughts before i ask hit you up with the mary question yeah well you know from that first experience i became a fan in later years you know as okay. i sort of started to appreciate what he was doing where he came from especially when i realized his love for sam who is yeah. my boss and my you know that's where my heart is was that you know stacks music sam and yeah. dave so when i realized that that he was patterning a lot of what he was doing after after Sam and Dave and also Gary U.S. Bonds. Right. You know, who I, I played with quite a bit in, here, here in New York, you know, so I love Gary. I love Sam, you know, and to see that he's got, you know, the five piece band with the tenor sax in it, I'm like, OK, I see what's happening. Yeah. So I came to it kind of through the back door. And then the most recent thing I saw him do, because I've seen a couple of shows uh, in more recent years, but I he did uh, the appearance on the Colbert show maybe a couple months ago Yeah, when he was doing the Broadway appearance and he did the, the solo acoustic version of, of the river. Right. Yes. And that I saw that I'm like, okay, now I think I'm starting to finally <laughs> understand yeah. his writing. Cause you know, I'm, I'm not a, I don't hear lyrics first. 
Right. I hear groove first. So that's why yeah. I, was, I go towards the, the soul music first. So like, you know, when I finally, and I, and I heard the song stripped down without the band, just, just him, the guitar. His and voice. no harmonica. Cause normally even solo, he'll that's do the harmonica right. and everything that was just him and the guitar. I thought that was the best thing I've ever seen him do. I was like, that's amazing. So like, yeah. I, I get it now, but it, it yeah. took me a minute to get there. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's, that's yeah. so good. That's yeah. great. All right. Being honest. Being no, honest. I appreciate that. Um, Jay Armstrong is a honors English teacher uh, that has recently retired. Um, and he, when he was still teaching, he would spend two days breaking apart Thunder Road with his right. students. They would look at the imagery, they'd talk about the lyrics, and then they would, at the end of the two days, ask the question, does Mary get in the car? Right. So that is your question, Ivan. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? At your prompting, I read through the lyrics today. Yes. And the entire scenario that he's painting is a sales pitch he's making to her absolutely he's saying we're going to go here we're going to escape this we're going to be able to do this you know so the the whole thing is is his uh trying to uh, uh you know encourage his desires onto her like trying to convince her like you know this is the thing that we that we need to do right but in in my reading of the song that question is unknowable because there's no indication that I saw in a, a in a, in my reading of it that that indicated whether she was starting to bend or starting to to, to acquiesce to his thoughts. So you know he's giving it his best pitch. He's going all out, but we don't really know if she took him up on it. You know, impossible to know. It's the unknowable. You know, um, that is. I usually about sixty percent say yes, she does. About 40% say she knows, no, but there is a couple of people that have had the same answer as you that have said the whole purpose of the song is we don't know. We don't know. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Because he mean, could have written two more lines. Yeah. At the end. And then we sped off into the night, you know, right. That's all he had to do. And, and he did not. No. Purposefully. I'm like, all right, there yeah. we go. Yeah. It's the same thing with why, you know, there is a reason why Born in the USA has that rock anthem, even though it's not what the song is about. It, it no. is that is that is a choice <laughs> on his part. Yes. You know, that he wants to do that. Yeah. This is yeah. fascinating. I cannot wait to read the book. I, <laughs> I am I am looking forward to it very much. I appreciate your time. If someone wants to find out more about you, what's the best way to contact you? Funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. I got links to everything there, all the socials, all the books, the the, the videos, the music, everything. The uh, the copious amount of celebrity photos that I've collected over the years of me standing next to so-and-so for one five hundredth of a second. Uh, I do not have a Bruce Springsteen photo. I will say that. I met him once, but I uh, did not actually get a photo op with him. Okay. But uh, I got everybody else. <laughs> all right everybody else is in there so way more than you would ever want to know about me is available at funkboy.net all right and am i famous yet memoir of a working class rock star available hardback paperback and kindle on amazon so Correct. check it out read it give him a five-star review 
<laughs> Ivan, Very thank kind. you, my friend. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I and, really enjoyed this. Uh, and if, if you're touring in Dallas, be sure and say, hey, Jesse, let's right go on. get let's go get some Tex-Mex. Dig so, it, dig it. You got all it, right. Sounds good. All right. Listener, you stay safe. Go get boosted. Go get vaccinated. Let's all be kind to each other because that's how we're going to get through this. Thank you, Ivan. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlessingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter at setlessingbruce, and my personal Twitter is at jessejacksondfw. We have a website, www.setlessingbruce.com. From there, you can find links to other Springsteen podcasts, as well as other music-themed podcasts. We have a page devoted to our own SLB All-Star Band. These are guests who have been on the podcast more than three times. There is a link to our store where you can purchase Set Lessing Bruce shirts, as well as a Merry Question t-shirt. There is a link to our Patreon page where you can sign up to help support the podcast financially. We have different levels and different rewards based on your support. If you don't have any extra cash, and right now who does, you can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.